and welcome to another edition of Halftime with Chuck and Drew. I think that's rather presumptuous of me, Drew, when I say welcome to another. That presumes yeah, it the means fact that, that they were here last time. <laughs> yeah, it means they were here last time, and I, we just don't know that that's true. It probably isn't. And we're going to talk about some teams today that if they're fans of those teams, if you're a fan of those teams, you won't be listening next week. That's right. But <laughs> we cannot uh, start this program without going to our weekly segment, your favorite and my favorite yeah. segment of this show, Who Knew About Drew, where we celebrate the massively impressive and incredible manliness of our very own Drew Barnett. It, it should be celebrated. That's, that's part of being manly. Is it could be celebrated. like a 365-day-a-year celebration, which it yeah. is for you because yeah. you're trapped inside yourself and there's no way for you to leave. <laughs> yeah, you got, you're right. Oh, it's, a, it's a great place to be trapped. <laughs> well, I want to say that for those of you out there listening right now, no, you cannot be Drew, and I know that this is a major life disappointment for you. However, now you can smell like Drew, and this has never been replicated by me during any of my trips to ethnic restaurants. <laughs> a company right now is considering producing a new men's deodorant that captures the aura of Drew, which, as most of us all know now, is generally impossible to do. <laughs> it will be called Essence of Drew, which will make you irresistible to the opposite sex and capable of handing over your wallet at gunpoint. This new product will also double as a large predator repellent and, in certain Pacific Islands, a tasty blowfish glaze. How about that? Yeah. Uh, whoever proposed that is looking for a job today. <laughs> <laughs> so you're out of work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Today on the sports segment of the program, you and I were talking about this. Everyone loves a winner, right? Everyone loves a winner. Everyone wants to jump on the bandwagon when a team yeah. is really good. But what about when a team is really bad? And yeah, and we've seen this. And, um, you, you know, when a team is winning, sports are sort of a bandwagon affair, not across the board, but for the most part, when you're winning, you're sold out. And when you're not, you're half empty, if that. Um, but I think some of the teams that we're going to talk about today lost so spectacularly so often that everybody just sort of had to stop and look like the same way you would with a train wreck. Like these are some <laughs> horrible, you, you, there was one, I, I'm not much of a fight fan, Chuck, but you told me about one and I was like, you have got to be kidding. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to those last. We'll save those are actually the best ones. Yeah. And we'll save the best for last in this case. And, we can open things up with Major League Baseball, yeah. and uh, I'm going to go, and I think you're on the same page with me here. The prize for being the worst Major League Baseball team of all time belongs to the 1899 Cleveland Spiders, who finished with an incredible record of 20 and 134. That means a winning percentage of 12.9. And as many people may have guessed, they finished last of the National League that year, a mere 84 games behind pennant-winning Brooklyn. Right. So 134 losses, that has to be a record. 84 games out of first. Like, at the All-Star break, there wasn't an All-Star game back then. But if there had been, they would have been mathematically eliminated by then. Uh, the story <laughs> behind this team 
is a little bit incredible. The owner of the team actually purchased a second team in St. Louis, liked that city and that market better. So he basically turned the Spiders into sort of like a minor league farm system, even though they were at the same level of baseball. And it showed uh, 20 and 34. Didn't the league basically – I don't know if they took over the team or if it went out of business. This is – I'd heard of the Spiders. I always thought it was the modern-day Cleveland Indians. It is not the same franchise. No, no. This was a National League team. And, yes, yeah. after this season, they went out of business. And to give you some perspectives uh, about the team – uh, they finished last in the National League in both hitting and pitching. Their top hitter was second baseman Joe Quinn, who batted 286, which today that wouldn't be too bad. But back then in that era, uh, probably that's like 236 today. Yeah. We're factoring in inflation. Their leaders in home runs each had two apiece. Their top pitchers were Coldwater Jim Huey and Charlie Nepper, who each won all of four games. Meanwhile, Huey was tagged with 30 losses and Nepper 22. That's 52 defeats combined between those two guys. At one point, if I'm cold water Jim, and these guys are back there flubbing balls behind me left and right, and I'm losing game after game after game, I'm going into the clubhouse with a bat and starting to do some business (laughs) on my teammates. (laughs) Yeah, and we'll see a pitcher win 30 games before we'll see a pitcher lose 30 games again because you by the time you get up to about the upper teens you're just not pitching anymore if you think about it that's pretty remarkable to lose 30 games yeah well I mean there who's behind him though look at the rest of the guys on that staff they had a team ERA well above six (laughs) they were horrible yeah. So they just left Huey out there because I'm not going to say he was their best chance of victory. He was their best chance at a respectable loss. <laughs> yeah. They, they had to play nine innings, unfortunately. So he, he was the guy that could get them there. When you talk about the modern day era, and I'm talking a little bit closer to now, really the worst teams probably were the 2003 Detroit Tigers, who ended up at 43 and 119. The 2018 Baltimore Orioles and the 2019 Tigers each ended their 162-game seasons with only 47 victories, which is, is pretty poor by today's standards. It's almost like you're out there with a AAA minor league team. Uh, yeah, that, that is kind of shockingly, shockingly bad, um, especially when you look at those franchises and how good they've been relatively recently for them to suddenly be that awful. Well, I remember that the manager for the 2003 Tigers, if I'm not mistaken, was former all-star Tigers shortstop Alan Trammell. And I can remember watching Tigers games that year on television from time to time. And I swear I caught him crying in the corner of the dugout one day. Well, Well, I mean, he looked around and realized he was managing the Tigers. (laughs) I mean, that'll do that to a person. I think a guy who has to manage a team like that should get his pay doubled. Yeah, (laughs) for all the aggravation he has to put up with. Yeah. All right, next up, we're going to move to the National Football. Well, you have a baseball team you want to talk about. And and I'm going to agree with you on this one, too. Yeah. The one baseball team that everyone says was the worst of all time, which we just proved was not, were, were the 1962 New York Mets. Yeah, they were 40 and 120, and I don't know why they played – they didn't play 162 games. Uh, maybe they just gave up at the end. But what was interesting about this Mets team was five years earlier, uh, New York had the, well, they still had, they had, and they still had the Yankees 
but they had the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants who were perennial powers in the National League, and they had really intense, passionate fan bases. Those teams moved to California, and the Mets sort of replaced them. They actually stole the color schemes like the orange from the, Do- from the Giants and the blue from the Dodgers, and to this day I still think they have that color scheme. So that's where it came from. And people hated the Yankees so much that, you know, former Dodgers and Giants fans hated the Yankees so much that they were just glad that there was another team in town for them to root for. And they didn't care that they were bad. In some ways, they were so bad that the the worse they played, the more popular they became. Like, I guarantee you the Cleveland Spiders were not selling out a ballpark the size of Shea Stadium when winning less than 40 games. Yeah, exactly. And the Mets were kind of a counterculture team because, as you mentioned, Back then, the Yankees were winning all the time. They were winning pennant after pennant, World Series after World Series. As someone once put it, it was almost like rooting for U.S. Steel. Yeah. It was just – it was. these were the guys in suits and ties, and, I mean, they had the best of everything. They had the big salaries. They had the best-looking women. They, you know, they had it all, the best homes, they, the biggest homes, the best cars, all that stuff. The Mets were a bunch of ragtag rejects, and they did actually have some good ballplayers on that team many of them passed their prime Uh, I think Richie Ashburn their center fielder who'd been with the Phillies during their heyday and was with the 1950 Phillies who won the National League title great center fielder very good hitter I believe he batted over 300 that season Duke Snyder was a part of the 1962 New York Mets so was Gil Hodges yeah these guys are former all-stars but they joined the Mets after they kind of used up the best of their careers So the Mets had some of these popular players from the Dodgers from the past. And as you mentioned, all these former Giants and Dodgers fans could not root for the Yankees because the Yankees had beaten both teams time after time after time in the World Series, and they could not find themselves rooting for the Yankees. So here comes a National League team, and they immediately embrace the Mets. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that sort of that divide is still in New York now. Casey Stengel, the former Yankee manager, uh, managed the Mets, albeit poorly. But, but it was just – I think that, like you said, Chuck, I think that they were so happy that there was another team in town. They almost didn't care that it was bad. I mean, New York, they'll boo anybody, but they loved – the most beloved team ever may have been one of its worst in the history of the city. Yeah, absolutely. They played in the polo grounds which was demolished in 1964 after the Mets moved into Shea Stadium. Yeah. And they had to play where the Giants had played for many, many years, a historic stadium. But by 1962, that place had become rather decrepit. They put some fresh paint on it and tried to clean it up as much as possible and used it in 62 and 63 before they moved over to Shea Stadium in Queens. So that's the story of the New York Mets, one of the most famous losing teams in the history of baseball. Now we can move to football, and really, uh, I have three choices there when we talk about worst teams of all time. The 2008 Detroit Lions, who finished 0-16. The 2017 Cleveland Browns, which finished 0-16. And then I still believe the worst team out of the three is this one, the 1976 expansion Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Yeah. They went 0-14. And it was a team so famously bad that head coach John McKay, who'd been a big winner in college football at Southern Cal, yeah. when asked after one of his team's losses about its execution, he said he was all in favor of it. Right. 
So <laughs> expansion worked differently back then. Um, now there's an expansion draft. They, they want you to be reasonably competitive right away. In the 70s, there was nothing like that. So you were basically trying to put together a camp with no expansion draft and really no draft. I think there was a draft, but like – even with the current draft, you're only drafting six or seven players and maybe one or two that are going to be, you know, contributing players right away, if that. So they're, they're really scouring the net with everybody else's cast-offs. And they were just destined to be terrible when they were. What do you think of that, Chuck? Just real quick, like, is an expansion draft a good idea because it makes the expansion team competitive or should we not have that at all? Because it isn't fair to the franchises that already exist. And if you want a team, then you're just going to have to be that bad for a little while. Well, the expansion draft I'm fine with, and maybe they need to expand the list of available players from each team. Uh, When the Houston Astros and New York Mets joined the national league in 1962, the list of available players per team was extremely small. So only the worst players were going to be on that list. And over time, that list has grown, whatever league you're talking about, to include a higher level of talent within that draft pool. So I'm okay with it. Uh, But what I was going to say was when we talk about the Tampa Bay Bucks, Drew, many people may not know this, but the quarterback that season, the starting quarterback for the Bucks, was was a 31-year-old veteran who'd been with the San Francisco 49ers, a guy by the name of Steve Spurrier, who went on to become one of the best college football coaches in history. Yeah, a former Heisman Trophy winner, recognizable in Florida, a pretty good player. Um, uh, he, he cheerfully denies ever having anything to do with that team, I think. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I would too, because the Bucks offense, <laughs> under his direction, averaged all of nine points a game. Yeah. The closest the Buccaneers in their inaugural season came to a victory was a 13 to 10 loss to fellow expansion club, Seattle. Other than that, uh, they were not in just about any game that they played that season. So I think they're the worst team of all time. They they, they are. But we have a special honorable mention, and I will let you introduce this team. Okay, so the 1952 Dallas Texans – the, the reason we have to mention them, they weren't as bad as the Bucks, but the Bucks at least stuck around in Tampa. The Dallas Texans originated in Boston, moved to New York, uh, and then moved to Dallas thinking that this was a good, new, exciting market. Seven games into the 12-game season, they're 0-7, and the, they, they moved the team, the league moves the team out of Dallas. First team, as far as I know, that moved cities in the middle of the year, moved it to Hershey, Pennsylvania. They kept the name the Dallas Texans, though, and continued to play in Hershey. Uh, they were 1-11. They won their last game of the year on Thanksgiving Day against the Bears of all teams. And that franchise today is the, the current Indianapolis Colts, if you can believe that. So the franchise stuck around. But has there ever been a team that was so bad that they weren't even able to complete their season in the city they started it in? The original owners of that team were Giles Miller and Connor Miller. And as you mentioned, they had the team taken away from them after an 0-7 start. It really wasn't about the record. It was about their financial wherewithal to run that team. Art Donovan, who later became a great defensive lineman with the Baltimore Colts, I believe he's in the Hall of Fame, Yeah, he is. talked about the fact that when the paychecks were issued, the players would race each other to the bank to make sure they <laughs> got there 
to ensure that their checks were good. Some of the players who got there first got paid. Some of the players who got there a little later found out that their checks had bounced. <laughs> God. That's oh. how bad the 1952 Dallas Texans were. And it yeah. took another eight years for the NFL to give Dallas another try. And, of course, in 1960, they were awarded the Cowboys, and the rest is history, so to speak. Right. All right, let's move to the NBA. And the worst teams there for me, the 2011-12 Charlotte Bobcats, who under head coach Paul Silas, a, a well-respected coach, yeah. uh, they finished a blistering 7-59, and averaging a league-worst 87 points a game. Two of their wins, embarrassingly enough for the Toronto Raptors, came against the Raptors. And yeah. they ended the season with a 23-game losing streak. And oh, the other man. team that I will take note of, and I remember this team from back when I was young, the 1972-73 Philadelphia 76ers. Their initial coach was Roy Rubin, who led them to a 4-47 and record. Then they turned to Kevin Lockery, who was a player, and made him the coach. And they slightly improved to 5-26 and under him. They ended the year at 9-73. and Wow. A winning percentage of 11. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it was a 17-team league back then for the NBA. They averaged giving up 116 points a game to their opponents. Yeah. They opened the year with a 15-game losing streak, and it was all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it's like they started off really slow and then tapered off. This is the part I found really amazing about the 72-73 Sixers, Drew. At one point, from mid to late February, I don't know if it was performance enhancers or what, but they won four of seven games. Wow. Again, <laughs> yeah, but, they kept that up. They'd have been in the playoffs. Just but then, it, that close. then it was they got voted off Fantasy Island at that point, and they wound yeah. up losing their last 13 regular season games. <laughs> and the, the Sixers, of course, are still around. They wound up winning uh, an NBA title a few years later after they improved their talent base. But those are my two worst. Yeah. So do you have any to note? Uh, I don't think any that beat that. Uh, not an NBA team. They, they, they might. I don't think they're as bad as that Sixers teams. But what about the Washington Generals? <laughs> Have the Washington? I've heard they've actually won a game against the Harlem. Bulls. Yeah, so they did. And if you don't know who the Washington Generals are, that that's the team that the that the Harlem Globetrotters play. It's not a real competition as much as it is a show. And at one of the shows, by sheer accident the generals won the game <laughs> and I don't know what do you do do you refund everyone's money do you put more time on the clock I mean that is sort of going off script um I think that everyone on the general's <laughs> roster was probably fired after that yeah. looking for work hey yeah. that's not the way the show is supposed to work you're in the tank here you're supposed to lay down for us right yeah but uh yeah uh maybe not as bad as that Philadelphia team or, or now, the Bobcats, jeez. Well, I'll turn to the NHL now, and I can remember this group of castoffs, the 1974-75 Washington Capitals. And they were. They're just a bunch of expansion rejects that other teams didn't want. And this group of ice mutts managed a first-year record of 8-67-5. And, and on the road – where they are always welcome guests. <laughs> yeah. They went. Boy, are the fans glad to see them. <laughs> yeah. Get this: they scored 181 goals that season, 
but gave up 446 to their happy foes. Wow. <laughs> they only had, I think, five double-digit scores. Tommy Williams, though, had a respectable 22 goals. The Caps, during that season, shut out 12 times. The team went through three head coaches during its first season, and it had losing streaks of 10 and 17 games. God. You, that's got to be the league And you want back out again after all that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, How do you keep that's playing? Terrible. That's terrible. Yeah. Absolutely terrible. We can move to college football now, and I think that uh, you and I are kind of thinking on the same page with a couple of these teams. Let's go to the first one. My vote goes to the 1991 Prairie View A&M Panthers. Yes. Uh, this was a team – I mean, they, they weren't just bad in 1991. Uh, they lost I, I, 80 games in a row. And, and as you had said, they had, as a cost-cutting measure, decided to cut scholarships and cut back on a few sports. Well, they play in – while not the top division, they still play in a scholarship league – and they weren't just losing, they were losing stupidly and losing huge and losing very much the way a high school team would lose to Alabama. <laughs> in 1991, let, let's, yeah, we'll back up and, and talk about this. After 1989, the school dropped football and several other sports, but then brought back the sports in 1991, but only using walk-on players for several seasons. And in 1991, Prairie View scored just 48 points in their 11 losses, and they gave up an average of 56 points a game. The low water mark was a 92 to nothing loss to SWAC rival Alabama State. Oof. Prairie View, as you mentioned, lost 80 straight games. They went back to scholarship football in 1998, and they lost their first three games that season, but finally ended the losing streak in September of 98, beating Mississippi Valley State 21-12. to Let's talk about that celebration on campus. <laughs> yeah, wow. I don't tear know if anybody the knew post, Tear down the stadium. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. That's a long time to go without a win. Uh, a long time to go. And think about, they went through several classes of football mm -hmm. players who never won a football game. Yeah, the, and never had a teammate that won a football game. Yeah, you, and that's yeah. pretty incredible to think about. 80 straight losses. Yeah. Special notation, and I'm going to let you talk about this one. 1916 Cumberland College out of Lebanon, Tennessee. Yes, so Cumberland that year didn't have a football team, really, to speak of. I think they had they'd had football, and they'd actually been fairly decent in it, but they, they cut the sports – the problem was that they were they had a contract and were already on the schedule to play Georgia Tech. Um, John Heisman, the John Heisman that the trophy is named after, was the coach. John Heisman, also the baseball coach, Chuck, and Cumberland had a really good baseball team. Uh, the problem was that they were all minor league ringers. Um, in an attempt to get the funding to keep football, they'd actually tried to bring in my, you know, professional baseball players as ringers in the hopes that a good baseball team would generate enough interest and revenue at the gate that they could afford football. Uh, they blasted Georgia Tech 22 to nothing in baseball. Uh, the problem is they didn't get enough money and they decided to cut the sport, but Georgia Tech wanted to play them anyway. They had no players. I believe it was a law fraternity that went down to Georgia Tech 
to play them. Georgia Tech, one of the best teams in the country, if not the best, playing a group of people that have never played football really before. And the final score was 222 to nothing in favor of Georgia Tech, the, the biggest margin of victory ever. Yes, and I think it was 63 to nothing after the first quarter. Yeah. 126 to nothing at halftime. And what I read today was that John Heisman told his players, he said, you got to watch these Cumberland guys. (laughs) (laughs) Don't know what they'll come up with at halftime. Heck, at halftime, I'm loading the bus and going home. They tried. Uh, Yeah, he must have just – he must have really been rubbed raw by the baseball game because at halftime they went to to quit. The rules back then, I guess, were the same. Like, if if both coaches agree that the game's over, you can end it. He did not want to end the game. He wanted to play the full four quarters. I think Cumberland uh, showed up with only a dozen or so players. They didn't have many guys to to play. Yeah. And and some of them got hurt, obviously, during the contest. Some ran and hid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm going going to the locker room to get four towels. I'll be back in just a bit. And just keep going. Hail a cab outside the stadium and take off. Yeah. (laughs) I'm out of here. Wow. But the football coach for that game for Cumberland was Georgie Allen. Not the yeah. George Allen, obviously, but George E. Allen, who happened to be the manager of the school's baseball team. Yeah. And he's the one that got the law fraternity guys to go out there and fill out the roster. They didn't want the school to have to pay a $3,000 penalty, which would be like $70,000 today yeah. to Georgia Tech for not playing the game. And Heisman, I guess, offered $500 in travel expenses to Cumberland to come down and quote-unquote play the game <laughs> yeah the massacre so to speak oh so, man you know yeah. custer had a better chance at the little bighorn did oh he did. did against georgia tech right all right we can move to college basketball the worst teams of all time and well guess who pops up number one for me drew um is it prairie view yes sir because yeah. <laughs> that was back in the non-scholarship days back in yeah. 1991-92 prairie view a&m went 0-28 0-14 in the SWAC. The Panthers, without a single scholarship player, lost every single game by double digits, including the Central Michigan, 115-55, a place where you used to work, Alabama-Birmingham, 110-49, and wow. Tulane, 120-54. They scored less than 65 points a game. The fact that they scored at all with a bunch of non-scholarship walk-ons is amazing oh. to me. They yeah. gave an average of 99 points a game. But the next year, Drew, they improved. They went one and twenty-six. Okay, so they so they did win it. And if you're keeping score, what is that? That's a one in fifty-four stretch there. <laughs> That's enough to make a grown man cry. Oh, God. Or or immediately sign up for restaurant management courses. <laughs> right. To oh. never be seen again <laughs> right. on yeah. a college basketball court. I would never admit to playing for a team like that. Do you well. play any sports in college? Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Don't look it up. <laughs> no, please not. I would, yeah. I would change my name and move yeah. <laughs> I've got oh, a, a special crazy. category right now. I think uh, the other team I talked about uh, being the worst of all time in college basketball was the 2004-05 Savannah State Ball Club. The Tigers of Coach Ed Daniels went 0-28. They yeah. averaged only 58 points a game. They allowed over 81 per game. Uh, they opened up the year with a 102-40 to loss to 24th-ranked Memphis. And, of course, 
just like the ski jump, it was all downhill from there, except there was no jump. You just got to keep going downhill. And they yeah. only had four games in which they lost by less than 10 points. Yeah, and uh, that was they were transitioning up from D1 and probably questioning why they ever decided to do that after going 0-28. Uh, they weren't all that much better the next year. I think they won a game. I want to say it was against Wilberforce, but it wasn't a D1 opponent. Toward the end of the year, they won a couple games that next year. But I, I want to say they were 7-79 and 79 in their four years as a transitional program, which is, if you're doing the math there, Chuck, that's less than two D1 wins a year on average. This is going to be my favorite category of worst of all teams, actually oh. worst of all athletes. We're going to move to worst boxers of all time. And before we get started, like, I just didn't – what made this so unbelievable was that after you get off to about an 0-9, 0-10 start in boxing, aren't you pretty much done? Wouldn't common sense and logic say, that's enough for me? Well, several anyway, just punches a thought to the face, if that doesn't convince you that you need to be in another <laughs> line of work, perhaps that you need to be in a mental hospital. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the worst one that I found – Boxed from 1990 to 2009, Donnie Pendleton. He was a light heavyweight from Mississippi. He was dubbed the Black Battle Cat, which is a really cool nickname. Yeah. And he had a career record, though, of 13 and 166. 166 losses. Like, it wouldn't take more than one loss for me to decide I was finished. <laughs> this is the part that's amazing to me, Drew. Pendleton actually won his first three professional fights. So from there on, he went 10 and 166. But searching for that elusive 14th victory, he ended his career in 09 with a TKO loss to Ronson Frank. So in 19 years of fighting, he lost 166 times. That, that is an enormously – you're getting your teeth kicked in literally – Far too frequently. The paycheck must have been awfully good to, to continue yeah. on with that. And then there's the guy that was dubbed once the worst boxer in Britain, Robin Deacon, who fought from 2006. Well, he showed up from 2006 to 2017. <laughs> yeah. And he had the career record to prove that he was the worst boxer in Britain. This human punching bag finished with a 2-53 and 53 lifetime mark. <laughs> along with multiple contusions, bruises, and ice bags. Oh, my God. Okay, yeah, two and 50. Who are the two guys he beat? Jesus. That's, the, that, yeah. Those are the two guys that are in the FBI Witness Protection Program <laughs> because they're embarrassed. Uh, yeah. Now, <laughs> here is the thing, Chuck. There are worse boxers in Britain, undoubtedly, but they're not boxing because they're smart enough to know. They're, it doesn't take them 53 losses against just two wins to figure out, hey, I shouldn't be doing this. Well, at one point, Deacon lost an incredible 51 straight fights, including 12 by knockout. Senseless, <laughs> probably from all that, he wanted to continue boxing, and his license was actually revoked for a while because of safety concerns, because he was taking such regular beatings in the ring. And so from 2015 to 2017, he did not fight. But he returned to 2000, in 2017 to continue on with uh, Mr. Consistency losing his final two bouts of his career. Wow. Unbelievable. <laughs> and, I, mean, <laughs> Unbelievable. I, I give him credit for persistency. Points for that. Yeah. No points for common sense. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
which he had knocked out of him 51 times. From <laughs> right, <Yes. script>. yeah. <laughs> Time to move on to topic number two. Drew, this is one that uh, you suggested. I kind of like this one. As everyone knows, this past Tuesday was May the 4th, better known as Star Wars Day because it was May the 4th be with you. Yes. Which I feel like a guy with a speech impediment every time I say that. Right. It's the day hardcore Star Wars geeks around the world get to openly and colorfully express their Star Wars geekdom. Yeah, so where I am with Star Wars is I, I really did like the movies, especially the original three or the middle three, whatever you want to call them, the, the episodes four, five, and six. Um, I'm not on the level that a lot of Star Wars junkies or diehards are on, but I always kind of admired, is that the right word, respected? I never liked, I'll, I'll put it this way, that a lot of them got such a bad rap of being geeks or losers or, or whatever, because I looked at that and I was like, okay, I'm not going to go out and dress up as Darth Vader or collect those plastic toys or go to those conventions or go to all these meetings and fan clubs. But But if that's what you're into, I look at people that are into that and I say, I wish there is they have something in their life that they really enjoy and they have a community of people like them that they enjoy sharing it with. Why would you long as they understand it's not real? Yeah, it's not real. And I think I would hope that most of them do. Now I wasn't born yet when the first star Wars came out, but this sort of subculture, didn't it sort of explode right away? Star Wars blew the world away, really, and it, and it continues to do so to this it day. It was the most fantastic thing I'd ever seen. I was in college at the time, so I yeah. will admit to the age gap between us at this point. But I can remember I was living up with my parents. I was home for the summer working in a factory making three and a quarter an hour. And I took a date to the local theater to see Star Wars. I mean, it was the biggest, coolest thing that I had ever seen and anybody else had ever seen. The special effects were way ahead of their time and uh if you couldn't fall in love and and want a lightsaber after that movie i'm not sure what's wrong with you but i thought the first thing i thought was man i'd love to have a lightsaber to carve up the thanksgiving day turkey (laughs) the coolest thing in in the world but i remember drew and this is 1977 so think about it i had to pay this line was wrapped all the way around the theater i had to pay 10 bucks a piece for me and my date to see that movie ten dollars a ticket wow that's probably like thirty dollars a ticket or thirty five dollars a ticket yeah at least yeah so so that's yeah that's an expensive date there Chuck. but um but yeah the movie and it's i I don't know I, i i said at one point that i thought george lucas might be clinically insane on not that he was a danger to himself or anything but he basically invented an entire universe with this whole history that people could debate and research and theorize about. And there's books written about it. And there's all these characters that, that are almost like, if you watch the movie, you in blink, you might miss one of them, but they all have this backstory. Like he basically created this almost fictional world. It's an entire fabrication and people just eat it up. Um, and they'll get into sort of arguments and philosophical arguments about Star Wars and what character would do this and where they came from and what happened during the Clone Wars, whatever those were. Yeah. Like, 
you know, it's just sort of, it really is sort of a cultural phenomenon that I don't want to say it's the only thing that's like that, but it might be the only movie franchise. If it's not the only one that's like that, it was definitely one of the first and it's still one of the biggest. I'll admit, I haven't seen Lord of the Rings. I read the uh, the Game of Thrones book. I, I, I just don't think anything equals Star Wars as far as the – it's got a cult following. Would you like some history regarding May the 4th be with you, that particular – Sure, part? yeah. All right. I went back and did some research on this. The day actually got its inspiration back in the spring of 1979 when the Conservative Party in the U.K. ran an ad in the London Evening News – in support of newly elected Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's victory, proclaiming, May the 4th be with you, Maggie. In 1988, the phrase was used again in an episode of Count Duckula entitled, The Vampire Strikes Back. And few might remember this, but the Los Angeles City Council in 2007 actually declared May 25th as Star Wars Day. Hey, what dummies, you missed the point. It's May yeah. the 4th. May the 4th. No one says yeah. May the 25th be with you. you know, right. It's California, though, so we'll give them some. Yeah, we'll for that. give them a little bit of leeway. The May the 4th commemoration for Star Wars got underway in full swing as a regular event in 2011 when Toronto natives Sean Ward and Alice Quinn put together the first known celebration of all things Star Wars in their home city which caught the attention of the media, which blew it up. As part of that celebration, local supermarket employee, Chad Vader, <laughs> you know where this is going, yes. went to work dressed as Doris. Chewbacca. No. Oh, it's Chewbacca. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Oh, man. He actually did go to work in a full-fledged, really cool, I have to say it, Darth Vader costume. I've seen the video on this, and it was pretty impressive. I, yeah. I, I don't know if he still does that or not. In 2013, the May the 4th Be With You event was officially recognized by the Disney Corporation, which has just per, which had just purchased, rather, Lucasfilms, the originator, of course, of the Star Wars film series. May the 5th, by the way, if you can believe this as it goes on and on, is recognized by some over-the-top Star Wars fans as Revenge of the 5th. As in Sith. Yeah. Then there's May the 6th for the same reason. You know, Star Wars is just an incredible phenomenon. It has spawned yeah. animated series, books, video games, toys, clothing, Halloween costumes, and all sorts of different merchandise. People have held events celebrating Star Wars, like parties and weddings. But I have to wonder something, Drew. Has there ever been a Star Wars bris? which is that's a great celebration where probably circumcision of a new baby and i could see the rabbi dressed as darth vader in there to whittle off a little piece of little allen's lightsaber (laughs) oh god (laughs) that that's an interesting that that would be breaking new ground uh some a star wars fan if they hear this show they're, they're probably going to do it so but yeah it really blew up mark hamill i guess he did other things i never really saw him in much Harrison Ford went on to work with Lucas again a lot on the Indiana Jones things. Interesting note about Alec Guinness. He was in the first Star Wars movie as Obi-Wan Kenobi, and he was in it about halfway through. He had been a very accomplished actor, and I I don't know if he was a stage actor or not, but he'd won a lot of awards for British film. 
and he didn't he thought it was just kind of stupid the whole thing and depending on who you talk to he said it was his idea to kill off obi-wan so he wouldn't have to keep saying all of those stupid lines which is curious because he continues to appear as a spirit in the other two movies but Mm -hmm. uh you know, one of the central characters, he, he was someone that sort of didn't like the mania and just kind of wanted to go back to what he was before. But once you've been Obi-Wan Kenobi, there's no going back. No. And <laughs> you mentioned that he was a fantastic, highly acclaimed actor well before yeah. he got involved with Star Wars. You mentioned Mark Hamill. I want to point something out. and I need to give Mark Hamill some props right here in the sense that here recently, he went to visit a young boy in the hospital through the Make-A-Wish Foundation, I believe. This boy was very young and believed that Star Wars, all that stuff was real, and he wanted to meet Luke Skywalker. So Hamill went to the hospital dressed as Skywalker and spent about an hour oh, wow. with the young man. So Mark Hamill, I know you probably will never hear this, but major props for doing that. Much respect from me on all that, because I think that's really great. Mm-hmm. And every May the 4th, I want to, I don't know who it is, if it's Disney or Turner, they're on, all, it's on all day long. <laughs> what do you think happens from here though? I mean, this series started in 1977, so it's been running for 44 years. Yeah. What's the lifespan of this? Does it have legs left in it? As far as making other movies or as far as continuing to be popular, I think that it's going, it might be popular for the next 50 years. I mean, it might sort of be like it's a wonderful life. Like every summer, there's just something new for it. As far as making other movies, uh, as you said, the Disney Corporation bought the rights to Lucasfilms, and I think they got his entire library, which included the Indiana Jones movies and American Graffiti and and some other stuff that's really good, albeit not as culturally big as Star Wars. And they've made a few others. Like, I, I think they made the last of the of the nine episodes, but they also made some offshoots of it. Um, there's one about Han Solo uh, when he was younger. It, it, it sort of predates, I guess, the, the original New Hope movie or the episode four. Uh, they made one called a Rogue One, which I think takes place chronologically before the original star Wars movie, I guess it would be between episode three and four. I don't, I I think that they're going to continue to make them as long as they think people will continue to come out and watch them. I think you run the danger in doing that of becoming too commercial in the sense that at first you were starting out trying to make really great films. And then after a while you've gone from that attitude of trying to really make great films to trying to make films that make a great deal of money. Yeah. And it loses the actual quality. I've heard this with musical artists who've been out there and they have some hits that are tremendous songs, but at one point their record companies would say, all right, we need a whole album of songs, just write whatever we can sell it. And that's what would happen. So the almighty dollar rule the choices here. So I'm kind of curious to see how long this goes and how long younger people, the newer generations, as we move forward in life, how fascinated they become with Star Wars and all the stuff that is Star Wars. 
Yeah, because I think you can oversaturate uh, with too many movies. I, I want to say that there's been several offshoots of TV shows um, I, and, you know, action figures. I, I, I don't know. I, I Some of the people that I know that are Star Wars fans who I hope are listening, uh, they can't get enough of it. But at the same time, when they feel that it's being exploited or taken advantage of simply because it's Star Wars, they, they don't like that either. And I could see it quickly becoming that. Um, but the, I, I don't, the movies are good, but the, the original ones, like the star, the episodes four, five, and six, the first three that came out are, I, I, could, I just still think that those are just so entertaining, all three of them. The first three movies that came out, will always be to me the very best of all of them yeah not saying i didn't like the other ones i'm not a star wars geek so to speak and i say that lovingly i'm not one that just pays attention to every little detail of the film series or whatever i enjoy the movies immensely if another one comes out i can promise you i will go see it but i wonder as time goes on as i said how long this can continue and how long they can make quality movies. Right. Or is it just going to become a franchise where they just crank them out and hope to make a few bucks? Right. And I hope it doesn't become that. I don't think they need to do anything else. It's going to continue to be worth billions. They can continue to like, you know, re-release them over and over. Like if you brought any one of the star Wars movies, if you released just star Wars, a new hope or return of the Jedi or the empire strikes back, in theaters next week, you'd fill the theater. Mm-hmm. You Absolutely. almost don't even need to make any more movies. Drew, I think it's time for us to bid adieu to all of our wonderful fans out there and thank them for joining us on Halftime with Chuck and Drew because they're the ones that we actually do this for. I mean, obviously, yeah. you and I are friends. We enjoy talking to one another about all sorts of topics, but we want to share our enjoyment with all the dozens of people out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that might still be around for this point. Might still be, yeah. Uh, so we want to thank them, but we also want to remind them that if they'd like to drop us an email, they can do so, and you can send it to halftime240 at gmail.com. If you have a comment, a complaint, uh, a suggestion for a topic that you'd like Drew and I to cover, please don't hesitate to drop us a quick note. We'd love to hear from you guys. And of course, uh, unless it's my dad who continues to complain about the fact that I don't give you enough airtime, dad, I don't care. Yeah. I'm the one producing this show. (laughs) (laughs) I love you all the same, dad. But again, it's halftime240 at gmail.com. Drew, as always, thanks a bunch. No problem. Thank you. And you've been listening to Halftime with Chuck and Drew.